If you want more from Dee and her sister and partner in crime, Rhonda, check out Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. You're listening to We Knew the Moon with Dee Safier, an empath who started a podcast to explore the universe, spirituality, and all things witchy woo-woo. Don't forget to check out the website, wenewthemoon.co.uk for all your I do what I want and the moon made me do it merch, whichever excuse you prefer to use for all of your life choices. Hi, my name is Dee and this is We Knew the Moon. Thank you for joining us today. I've got here Michelle Alderson. Hello. Hello, Dee. Last time you joined us, you covered the Pendle Witch Trials and while you were talking about that you got very interested in the topic of cunning folk and so we decided to get you back on to do an episode on it those of you that have heard me talk about michelle before she's an amazing artist and um, has her own business uh, heartfelt illustration so i'm going to hand over to you today i'm going to be telling you a little bit more about cunning women so in the previous episode on the pendle witches i did talk briefly about the subject of cunning women and we talked about the victims of the Pendle witch trials and we discovered that they came mainly from two rival families that were thought to be working as cunning folk and they were self-identifying themselves as cunning folk and uh, also perhaps using the more dangerous word witch. So we found that both of these family groups were living and trading in the same area of Pendle Hill in Lancashire and that they were possibly related by marriage. In this episode though I'm going to go a little bit deeper so I'm going to go into the topic itself and I'm going to tell you a little bit about who cunning women were, why I use the term women more than the word folk for the most part and what they did for their profession, their roles in their societies, the particular skills and services that they offered. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about the historical and social evidence and try and place the story of cunning women in a time frame as much as I can, as well as talking about how cunning women were unfortunately caught up in the witch trials of the 15th to the 18th centuries. So I'm going to start sort of at the beginning of how we know about cunning women. Before you start, Michelle, can we give a shout out to someone who did some amazing stuff with with our Pendle Hill episode? You can, absolutely. You can find her on Instagram, Ellie Bird Art, all one word. She made an amazing video with, with audio clips of you talking about the Pendle Hill witch trials. But hello, Ellie. Thank you. We were honoured, weren't we? <laughs> we were. We were absolutely honoured. And it was a real pleasure to talk to her, Dee, as well, about her work and her sewing. So really, really interesting lady. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I just wanted to give her a little shout out because, you know, nice to have fan art, isn't it? <laughs> it's wonderful. It was so nice. It was really nice of her to contact us around it as well, you know, and to talk about it. So, in 1921, in Bidford-on-Avon, in Warwickshire, very, very close to the border with Worcestershire, a 6th century Anglo-Saxon graveyard was discovered when the construction of a new car park was taking place. So several graves were uncovered within this area. Most of them were of seemingly poor and just ordinary people buried in the usual way without any grave goods in the usual manner. However, there was a grave of a woman buried on the very edge of this graveyard and it was very different from all the rest. 
not only was her grave positioned unlike the others right at the edge instead of in the lines of the graveyard perhaps indicating she was different in some way from the rest of the people the grave contained remains of what appeared to be a high-ranking important individual so unlike the other burials this lady was laid out what looked like particular care possibly reverence she was wearing a long robe with a leather bib and she was wearing both pagan and christian jewelry which included a 39 bead red yellow and green beads glass bead necklace and she also had a bag hanging from her waist like on a belt hanging from her waist and inside there were several items which included a long-handled knife that looked very similar to a scalpel. So if you can imagine a really long handle with a tiny little blade at the end. And she also had inside the bag an antler cone from um, an animal. But right at the end of the antler cone was a tiny little hole that had been drilled. It had a little hole in the thin end. And along with that, inside the bag were some remains of what was considered sort of organic matter but it appeared to be things like plant scraps and little pieces of fabric inside this bag. So that was really unusual and very different from the other graves in the graveyard. And then another one, there was another similar graveyard example was discovered in Wheatley in Oxfordshire. And in one of the graves discovered there, this time a bag placed under the arm of a lady in a a similar laid out grave, And again, she had the glass beads, glass and amber beads around her neck, wolf's teeth, a boar's tusk, again drilled Mm -hmm. with a hole, coins, jewellery, as well as more metal and fabric scraps. Beneath her feet were placed iron rings, bronze plates, glass fragments, a bronze disc, some wrist clasps, maybe possibly bracelets and an iron rod with a copper wire through one end. So if you can imagine like a a long metal stick with a little copper wire just on the end. Hmm. So again, this grave would imply a high status person, totally out of the ordinary with other graves around it that would be considered more run-of-the-mill, more ordinary people's. So these other graves, they didn't have a bunch of accessories buried with no, them. No, 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 no accessories, no, nothing placed inside the usual graves. So these were unusual for mm. the time. I mean, it's unusual now, but it was especially unusual then. So there weren't many individuals that would be buried with their items. So you've kind of got to sort of think, why would they, why would they put those inside the graves with them? Were they useful to them in their life? Did they use them integrally to what they were doing? in their villages perhaps that's what the reason was perhaps they thought that they needed to put them with that person because they might need them in the next life it could be sort of those kind of beliefs but what they're thinking is most likely is that those tools were part of the status of that individual so without them they wouldn't have the same status so they were obviously really important and integral to those mostly women that these graves were found like Did I hear right that they were wearing the same kind of necklace? Yeah, the same sort of glass beads around the neck. Now, you know, when you look into it in more detail, there's lots of similar examples. So there were several of these unusual burials being discovered. 
and they all seem to be from around the same time in the early centuries. And most of them located in an area of Britain that would at the time have been known as witchy. And if you remember in our last podcast, mm-hmm. I didn't know as much about it then. I'd read a little bit and I actually, I, I spelt it wrong, I'm afraid, in the first podcast. I said T W I double C E, but actually it's H W I double C E. But it sounds the same. It's witchy. And actually it wasn't a it wasn't a tiny area, as I thought. The place where some of the graves were found, like Bidford, was small. But actually, the area of Witchy was a tribal area in Anglo-Saxon England that spanned what is now the current area of Warwickshire through to Somerset, With, the, if you can imagine, with the Cotswolds at its centre. It's quite a large area, actually, and most of these unusual graves have been found in within that area. Right, so okay. implying that there was something maybe specific to the peoples living in those areas. The people at the time were predominantly pagan. Christianity had arrived and it was making some headway, but for the most part, most people were practising pagan and older thought religions. As Christianity did arrive, initially they coexisted, possibly even interconnected. If you remember what I just said about the lady in the grave, she was actually wearing both pagan and Christian jewellery. Perhaps that would indicate a coexisting of those philosophies, or it might mean that she had customers from both religions. For the most part, like we just said, the pagan religions were dominant at the time and multiple in existence. So there wasn't just one way of being pagan at the time. There were different thoughts as well. And they differed across the areas of Britain. But what was common amongst them was they were often female deity based and female led. Sometimes they were based on both male and female, but usually they were focused on the female deities. And there's very little evidence to suggest that it, there was any male-focused or male-only-led religious practice that existed in the UK until Christianity actually arrived. So this was a new concept, really. Well, I didn't know that. So all other religions were either female deities or a mix? Or a mix. I do like the ones that represent both because I think without that, you can't really understand the natural world. Yeah. I think anything that's just one-sided is is literally giving one perspective. But I think when we say about pagan religions being female-led and um, reverence for female deities, I don't, I don't mean that they didn't honour the male. I mean that at those times in the early centuries, the perception of women and womankind and womanhood itself was respected and revered. Pagan religions were essentially nature-based and they focused on the natural cycles of the months, the seasons, the earth, the weather, the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun, with a real emphasis on fertility and the circle of life itself. And so I think with the focus on women isn't really about just one gender one look at women themselves I think it's more about that women's bodies were more obviously symbolic of all of those cycles 
the male body is integral to fertility and the cycles. But I think it would have been more of an obvious symbol and more of an obvious observation when you think about periods, pausing of menstruation, pregnancy itself. So women's bodies are more obvious. Even menopause. Yeah, absolutely. So the natural world at that time, Dee, was it would have been closely watched monitored, honoured and celebrated and really actually thought to be in an intimate and reciprocal cyclical relationship with humans, not just obviously, not just with females. But the fact that women were seemingly the embodiment of these natural cycles meant that they were just in themselves held in high esteem and were believed to be innately knowledgeable and powerful in their essence as females because of that. So basically as the creators and carriers of new life. So worship of the female form, female deities and fertility itself were evident in many of historical artifacts and documents that have been discovered from that time. It must have been quite nice to be a woman at that time, huh? Oh yeah, absolutely. It must have been, wasn't it? Before the Christian missionaries came along and ruined it all. (laughs) Apart from maybe the, the hygiene just think it might have been quite nice to live in a time where women were worshipped right absolutely I think so and not just women worship but the observation of the of the world itself would have been nice with the people lived integrally with and naturally with the biosystem it was what occurred and it's like he was saying just then it's only really when organized religion came and sort of swept the carpet out from underneath these concepts that things began to change dramatically especially unfortunately for women and we do have this expectation these days now of just whatever season of the year to operate Mm -hmm. the same I was talking to someone today about how it's the end of the year and everyone kind of feels a bit run down and tired at this point because you know yeah. the, the the days are shorter so you get tired don't you like in the summer when the the sun is out until like 10 o'clock at night you have more yeah. energy you feel like meeting someone in the evening for a drink in the pub or whatever whereas in the winter it's a bit more struggle but we're still obliged to work the same amount of hours and do the same things we don't live in tune with what nature is is telling us anymore do we no. and I think that we suffer <laughs> I think we do suffer, but mostly from beating ourselves up for feeling so tired so early in the yeah. day. I know, I know myself, as soon as, the, you know, like yesterday, it was about half past two when the sun began to go down and you just feel so like, oh gosh, that's the day over with then. Yeah. And in the summer, like you said, there'd be another eight hours of daylight. Exactly, exactly. You know, you finish work and you go, well, what now? Whereas now it's like, I can't wait to finish work so I can pass out a bit on the sofa at 8 p.m. <laughs> yeah but actually living if we were truly living in the uh, imbalance with nature we would accept that as part of the year as yeah. part of that existence and we would choose those times to rest which is what they would have done as the animals did as the plants do we aren't above that but I think sometimes those religions that arrived those more patriarchal religions did literally remove us from nature itself Placing the beliefs within the frame of daily life at the time was key to understanding the role of cunning women in their communities. So even though we just said that the natural world would have been a really important thing for them and they would have uh, adjusted and they would have honoured and worshipped the natural world, 
it must have also been really, really scary, mustn't it, Dave? Mm. It must have been really frightening because they wouldn't have known why things happened. They wouldn't have known why people got sick or why crops failed or why the weather was doing what it was doing. If you were going to make it through the winter? Exactly. If your animals were going to make it through the winter. Did you harvest enough food for the winter? All of these things. So all of these things would have been unknown and every year would be the same and every year you would, they would be thinking about how they were going to get through the next one. And so it would have been an integral part of daily thinking. And the things we take for granted today, like being able to get medicine when you're sick or going and find a midwife for the safe delivery of your baby, all of these things. Vaccines. Vaccines, really key and current now, vaccines. So not just treating the sick, but then like vaccines do now trying to avoid illness. None Mm -hmm. of these things were there. And so as humans, as we all are, we all want to know why, don't we? We all want to bring meaning to those things. And basically to be guided and helped through those times of potential hardship. And this is essentially where the cunning woman's role lies. It would be her. It would be that person that was the focus for all of those things within the communities. So it would have been really easy to make the assumption, and it has been frequently, that the peoples of the past had very limited knowledge and skill compared to today's medicine and science. However, this is actually being seriously challenged in light of all the things that have been discovered. So much so that these grave discoveries that we were talking about earlier are now becoming really crucial to the understanding of the development of what might just be the very first medical professionals, i.e. these coming women. So it's now widely thought that the women found in these 6th century graves were a really particular type of individual. We know now that they were in fact cunning women. And as we said before in the last podcast on, on Pendle, cunning actually is an old English word and it means to know, knowledge, to be knowledgeable. So basically women who were considered the vessel of all the knowledge that the people around them would need. And those were mm-hmm. women that people would go to to access that knowledge. In villages and communities throughout the land, there was, we think, a designated individual or individuals that would be in that role, potentially inherited, perhaps a family trade, like we saw the ladies in Pendle. But it would definitely, definitely be a role that would require a lot of studying, a lot of knowledge and lots of observation and practice over time. So it wasn't something that you could just pick up. So the wise women of the village, it was a specific job title almost. I would say so. And I think that the graves with those particular women with their tools in would indicate that level of importance as well. Basically, these women, because they were almost certainly exclusively women, were performing a holistic combination of roles, which included elements of the spiritual, the pharmaceutical, and now we even think medical and surgical help for the people in their communities. They were healer, they were counsellor, midwife, pharmacist, herbalist, seer, and potentially also priestess too. So there may be some evidence to suggest, especially with the jewellery and the regalia that were worn, that perhaps that they were a religious figure as well. 
their work involved, the gathering, preparing, and absolutely knowing about the properties and efficacies of a wide range of local plants and herbs and the natural ingredients that would then be used as the basis for their prescriptions. And I'm not using that word lightly, I'm using it in the terms of their medical role and providing what would be prescriptions and treatments so creating things like salves and medicines and creams and poultices for lots and lots of varying different from very minor ailments to, like we said, possibly up to surgical level of treatment as well. Do you know what kind of surgeries they did? Well, there are some, which I'm going to tell you about a little bit later, some okay. publications, one of them called Bald's Leech Book 3, uh, leech meaning to heal, not the actual animal so there are some publications that would give us some good indications of how they use those tools so for example you know when I said at the beginning about the antler horns basically they think that those were potentially used to put things like eye drops in oh. or ear drops so that they could be administered so the salves and the treatments yeah. could be administered into small areas delicate areas perhaps like the eyes perhaps to remove things like worms. There were little tiny knives and perhaps they were used for delicate work, bursting boils or treating small burying insects that may have gone into yeah. the skin. So these tools that were used were often, like I said, they were used to, to administer some of the medicines and the prescriptions, but they may also be used for intricate surgical procedures like removing worms and things from the eyes. So we've got them knowing about plants and knowing about the natural elements that they would be able to harvest from around them, knowing where the plants were and where they needed to look to find them and potentially how those plants were used for treatments. There was also the additional use of rituals and routines and chants and word work to help with the mental side of healing as well as the physical. And today and in the last few hundred years, words like spells, charms, and magic have been used to describe these. Now, whether the people would have used those words themselves is another thing. It's so funny, isn't it? Because I was thinking, yeah. oh, that sounds like religion, you know, in terms of chants and hymns and this, that, and the other. And yeah. But then, yes, you could easily also say, oh, it sounds like witchcraft. I mean, basically, it's very similar, aren't they? Basically, this is the translation of it to a more modern thinking. However, I don't think that they would have thought of it like that. So I'm going to sort of talk to you a little bit more about that because I don't think they would have probably used words like spells and magic hmm. and charms. What we do know is that these cunning women saw their healing as holistic and homeopathic. So basically, that a salve of herbs wasn't enough that the mind must also be engaged in the healing too. That the patient needed to believe that they were being helped or healed or cured. In effect, creating a working placebo effect that combined with the topical and medicinal treatments that they were preparing actually could relax and could soothe and could aid the physical healing in their patients. So not just one thing, but both. So if we think like, D, if we think of things like, if I'm trying to sort of clarify, if we think in terms of like the benefits of soft music being played while you have a massage or 
we think of the breathing exercises mm. we do to relax or yoga or lovely words being read out in a in a really nice confident reassuring voice or singing at ceremonies or prayers like you said at religious services you know like the incense and the the little tinkling bells and all of these things that add to the experience this is what cunning women used to aid the physical healing at the same time we know strangely Dee, that the placebo is effective in itself and it would seem that even when a patient knows they're receiving a placebo healing is still increased further than when no placebo was there or no treatment at all. That's so weird. And this is based on loads of, of scientific research currently. So even if I tell you that you are receiving a placebo, D, your brain will still do something with that and it will still aid healing faster than if you had no treatment at all. Wow, that's blown my mind a little bit because when you think about that, how how is that explained <laughs> don't understand i think we can only be explained in terms of the body and the mind not being separated that actually the brain is super powerful and needs to be engaged at the same time as the body and i think this is the, the key to understanding that cunning women and actually what unfortunately occurred with it being translated into witchcraft is that these women these professional women did understand that connection. Yeah. And not only did they understand that connection, but they made it integral to the healing that they performed. So yeah. yes, they understood the herbs. Yes, they made the pulstices. But what they also did was make the healing into a ritual, a thing that occurred, the relaxing, the words that went with it. For example, there were things like do this three nights in a row or do this by the light of the moon or go back to this point uh, and all of it not being a distraction from the healing as you would maybe assume but actually to add to the healing to like focus the mind and the intention like yeah focus the mind and the intention because we all know that when we engage different parts of our brain other things do occur so I know myself if I'm stressed out that if I decide to to do something that makes my brain change path so it maybe it could even be something as simple as you know going and doing the washing up so you when you do something with your brain that is different it can cause you to be relaxed so I would I would assume that there was for cunning women that they were trying to activate that in their healing mm-hmm. Yes. And again, I was I mentioned the book earlier, Bald's Leech Book Three, which is a book basically that is from that time that has these prescriptions written down. But like I said, it it doesn't just have what the herbs they needed and how to prepare them. It also had the method and what to say and how to perform the actual healing with the patient. Oh wow. What time is that book from? This book is from around the same time. So it was actually scribed in a Christian monastic settlement around 925 Common Era. However, it was believed to be from hundreds of years earlier and it was just recorded down at that particular time in the monasteries. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the the things in them, a lot of the prescriptions in them are believed to be from much earlier in time. 
and the connection being made between these prescriptions and the cunning women's graves that have been found, which if you look at some of the tools that were in those graves and some of the prescriptions in the book, and this book is you can you can find and read, you can see uh, um, appearances of those ampler cones and some of the tools that were in the graves and found. So actually indicating some of the uses for them as well. Oh, wow. The role of the cunning women at the time was understood to be positive on the whole. So although ideas of evil definitely did exist, they weren't initially associated with those women and certainly not in the early centuries. Those women were thought to be, like we said, knowledgeable, the people that you went to for help. Their profession was more about ridding people and places of evil and sickness, not actually generating it. They were the support body in a community. So one that would be turned to to treat illness or, you know, when somebody's having a baby or when somebody's dying, but also to locate lost items or rekindle love and relationship, for example. So I mean, who wouldn't her... want a lady like that living in your village, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. So that would be, you know, the people that you went to. And at that time, that would be a positive experience. If I lived in a village with a cunning woman, I would bother her so much. I would just want to follow her around all day, learn from her, ask her all the questions. <laughs> Potentially, people might have done that, might they? Mm. They may have done that. She may have had no peace whatsoever. That would have been number one customer, I'm sure. (laughs) One thing that was interesting to note is that mental illness, as we know now, is it's taken some time, hasn't it, to sort of have more understanding about those kinds of illnesses. And still, we've got a long way to go, haven't we? But back then, if, if somebody had a stroke or they had a fit, for example, or schizophrenia, these things would have been thought not really understood what they were. So they did find explanations and treatments for these that were maybe to rid the person of, for example, magical beings, like they would have maybe thought schizophrenia might be an elf infestation. <laughs> Sorry, that I've never heard of a cuter sounding infestation than an elf infestation. <laughs> Again, we think of elves as quite sweet, but at the time it would be... Mischievous, huh? Potentially, yeah, and mysterious. So things that couldn't be explained or simply treated like a boil, things like that, would have would have been looked at in a slightly different way. If somebody was maybe presenting with schizophrenia or a similar sort of mental illness, the cunning woman may have approached it in the way of needing to get rid of an elf or the mischief of a dwarf or something that was occupying that person. And the treatments would maybe be based around that. Now, that's not to say that they were ignorant and they, you know, but they just wouldn't have known at the time. When we get to the point in the 15th century, when we're, when we're talking about witches and magic and familiars and magical creatures, I'm wondering whether there's an overlay there Ooh. from these kind of concepts. So that's one thing to consider. So I'll tell you a little bit about these books. I mean, I've mentioned it once already. There's, there's two kind of documents, two books that are key to this that I've looked at and I've read around. And like I said, the first one is called Bald's Leech Book Three. And it was actually a set, as it would appear to be, of a set of three medical books. But the third book 
focused on what they would refer to at the time of writing as sort of more folk medicine, mm. which included, like we were saying, these prescriptions, these treatments, and they would, they would include a wide variety, but they would not just include the herbs and things. They would also include the rituals and the times of the year, etc. So the second one is called Laknunga, and Laknunga means remedies. And this book was edited and translated from Old English in the 19th century, fairly late actually, but it was believed to have been translated from a, a 6th century text and again included prescriptions and descriptions of some of the treatments that potentially cunning women and cunning folk would have performed. I wonder if anyone's looked at these prescriptions and evaluated them, their effectiveness. Right, okay, so they have, did. <gasps> they have. In fact, lots of them make quite a lot of sense. There's lots of things that w- you would recognise in today's medicine, mm-hmm. like chamomile for calming, and, yeah. soothing and lavender. And there were, a lot of things have potentially carried through. And actually, strangely, there was a study done at Nottingham University with one of the cures that was supposed to be for the eye. And actually when they recreated it in the lab, they found that it was an effective treatment for MRSA. And it's now actually being explored much further and to try and actually to use it, to actually use it. Oh, wow. A lot of the knowledge has been lost because of the reframing. So slowly drip by drip as more patriarchal Christian religion became at the forefront. A lot of the more feminine healing and the medicinal knowledge slowly became lost. And and that's the place that we're at now. So yes, Dee, these books and these treatments are being looked at now and researched and trying to see if they have relevant efficacies for today's disease management as well. That's amazing, isn't it? That's absolutely amazing. So as the position got less desirable, yes, when it became more taboo to be studying these things and to be practicing these things, yeah, it slowly got lost, I suppose. It slowly got lost, but we are gaining some knowledge back. And the, it, the field of study is called ancient biotics. Ancient biotics? Ancient biotics. It's now being studied and looked into because, as we know, some of our current treatments, like our antibiotics, are becoming less and less effective. Yeah. And we do need to look at other things, and we do possibly have a lot of knowledge that has been lost to time, and we need to we need to refine. And it's nice that it's actually being looked at because the reframing of of women as witches and the tragedy that led to the witch trials isn't just what we've lost. We didn't just lose all of those people. We lost all the things they knew mm-hmm. at the yeah. same time. And what a tragedy that is. Yeah. So you've got to ask yourself, why haven't you? So from the 7th century onwards, so we're not talking much further on from the origin of these graves that were found. Christian conversion began to become systematic and patriarchal philosophy began to dominate in the UK. Well, not just in the UK, but you know, quite widely. Along with it then, the standing of women within Christian society was significantly reduced. So the emphasis was turning to male dominance of thought, of the of ideas, of the status, and essentially, and most importantly, of reproductive rights. Yeah. 
let's not forget that the Bible doesn't paint women in a very positive light, especially the sort of first stories that you were told when you're introduced to Christianity with Lilith and Eve damning the whole of humankind. Christianity began trying to get rid of, I suppose, those pagan rituals and beliefs. And they did that by sort of gradually doing it. It wasn't one thing that occurred on one day. It was just more of a, a drip, drip, drip. So changing the power of the woman as the embodiment of nature to something other, but also the host of original sin. So the female body now being a vessel of evil that had to be controlled. So pagan practice was seen as promoting reverence for this new evil. And I think this is the beginning of the end of calling women themselves. So I say the status of these women began to be less and less and less until not only were they without status, they, they'd moved into a different field and, were, and were, their knowledge now being reframed as something that was anti religion and evil it's so sad isn't it yeah and like we were saying the the evidence and things are less as well because as we know they destroyed a lot of the statues a lot of the places they built christian churches on top of what were considered to be sites of importance for pagans as well they did take on board like you were saying in previous ones celebrations and altering them to be christianized that did occur. That was not really because they cared about the the indigenous beliefs. It's just they knew that that's how you get people to convert is by letting them keep their holidays and their beliefs to an extent. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I wonder how the people felt about that themselves. But things like, when you know, when we, we talk about the goddess and the, the female deities, perhaps those things, like you're saying, that they were molded and taken into Christianity to try and absorb them so they could retain the people. Lots of people that converted did not do it willingly. No. And potentially, perhaps pagans maybe embraced some of those thoughts because they could safely keep some of their beliefs. So, for example, if we like think of the goddess figure and maybe Mary in the Bible, especially in Catholicism, perhaps Mary was worshipping Mary was a way to keep the goddess in their life. Yep. To manage a change opinion so drastically that you go from, if you live in tune with nature, then you are wise and, um, and sought after mm. to completely fitting it so that now if you live in tune with nature, somehow that's evil. Absolutely. And, and I think that is perhaps the unfortunate story of, of cunning women themselves and why we can't always see the, the path, the trail through to the current day clearly is because the reframing and the propaganda around that was so successful. We haven't even touched on the impact on the environment because we've talked about the impact on women and, and women's role right. in society and so forth. But us moving away from living in tune with nature and respecting nature, worshipping nature. What you're saying is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So I did environmental studies at uni, but we definitely were coming out of a period of feeling like we own nature and we're above nature, so very hierarchical, to moving into a role where we view ourselves as the steward of nature, looking after it, to now moving hopefully in where we realize that we are one with nature and we are 
in the middle of it. We're not above nature. We have to work with it and in it. And we are. Shall I finish there by reading you one of these prescriptions? Oh, yes. I would love a prescription. Okay. This one is for the eye salve, which is now being looked at by Nottingham University for a treatment and effective cure for MRSA. And MRSA is obviously a huge problem in hospitals. So if they found something effective that is, I presume, like locally found, that that would be, the impact would be just off the charts. So what's, what's what's the salve? So here we go. Now, some of the ingredients sound strange, but I'm sure you understand what, you will understand what it is. So to work an eye salve or a when, I think that's the word for I take crop leek and garlic of both equal quantities pound them well together take wine and bullock's gall of both equal quantities mix with a leek put this then into a brazen vessel and let it stand for nine days in the brass vessel wring out through a cloth and clear it well put it into a horn and about night time apply with a feather to the eye mm. we get a mention there of the horn and the cloths in the graves at the beginning there was some indication that there were fabrics there as well possibly as this prescription talks about actually using the cloths to get the fluid from whatever they were using and through the cloths so that's possibly one of the things that they did things like bullock's gall I'm thinking maybe that's fluid from stomach perhaps I don't know yeah But the clever folks at Nottingham University are on it. And there's so many more different prescriptions. Lots of them talking about, you know, like it says for nine days, particular numbers like um, triplicates and multiples of triplicates like nine days. They appear quite often as well in these treatments, as well as the times to administer them at like nightfall and dawn, things like that. We can see that you know, there were basically three elements to a cunning woman's treatments. There was the medical, so the actual physical treatments. There would be like the spiritual scene setting and the words. And obviously then the key and very important adherence and observation to the natural rhythms. So again, all those three working in harmony. We now know that perhaps some of these prescriptions actually did work. Yeah. So that's that blows your mind, doesn't it, really? Yeah, completely. Thank you, Dee. See you next week then. Bye. Bye. If you want lots more fun, moon info, and all things spiritual, plus our merch shop, please visit our website, weknewthemoon.co.uk. And if you want even more, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash weknewthemoon, and check out some of our bonus content. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at we.new.the.moon, and we're also on Twitter at weknewthemoon1. See you next time.